Hi everybody, my name is Pete Finn and I'm a senior lecturer in politics at Kingston University and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. On the podcast today, we are returning to the other side of the pond from the UK where I'm based to engage with um, the nuances of how the, poli the politics around the pandemic evolved in North Carolina. Um, and we are joined today by Chris Cooper to discuss that. Chris Cooper is at Western Carolina University. He is a Madison Distinguished Professor and he's the Director of the Public Policy Institute. And his broad focus and expertise is in political science and public affairs with particular expertise on politics of North Carolina. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I should say, for those, um, if those of you who don't know, Chris's work over in the UK. Chris has been involved for a number of years with um, a series that I co-curate for the LSE US Centre, and I'll put some links to Chris's writings into the show notes from that. Um, so before we dive into kind of the details around the pandemic, um, for those who perhaps don't know that much about North Carolina or its politics, can you just explain the basics of kind of politics sure. of the state? Yeah, absolutely. So North Carolina is, I think, American politics in, in, a, in a microcosm, really. So if you sort of take all of American politics and the tensions of it and you boil it down to its essence, you see a lot of that in North Carolina politics. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's a competitive two-party state in the American South. Those are kind of hard to find, right? When we think about the American South, we think about a region that was dominated by the Democratic Party for a long time. They called it the solidly democratic South through the 40s and the 50s, the 60s, even into the 70s. In the 80s, it started to shift a little. And now, of course, we see uh, American South that is really defined by the Republican Party. North Carolina was never quite as democratic as some of its neighbors. And today, it's not quite as Republican as many of its neighbors. So it's, it's a really competitive two-party state. Um, it was traditionally defined by sectional differences. So we thought about the Western mountains and the Piedmont and then the Eastern part of the state, which was by the coast. Those are still kind of important, but they've been overtaken by this tension between urban and rural areas. So we don't have an Atlanta or Chicago in New York or North Carolina, but we do have cities like Charlotte, um, Raleigh, Durham, Asheville to some degree, and then we've got a lot of rural areas. And so that's really where you see the partisan divide. In terms of governance, it's a legislature first state. So we've had three state constitutions in our history. They differed in some various ways, but the one thing they all had in common was they said, hey, the legislature is the most important thing. There was an old line, I think in the late 1800s, where somebody said, we gave the governor just enough power to sign his own paycheck. In other words, the governor had very, very limited power. At the same time, we don't resource our legislature very well. So we give them a ton of power, and then we pay them $13,951 a year. We don't give them a lot of staff, and we have a session length that varies dramatically. So you sort of give this one group of people a ton of power, but then kind of not rob them, but deny them the resources that would often come with that kind of power. So you put all that together in a stew and what you've got, I think, like I said at the beginning, is kind of a microcosm of American politics today. Polarization uh, between parties, geographic polarization, 
and a fight for power between the branches. Wow, thanks. How interesting. Wow. So, so yeah, so 13,000, that's about 10,000 pounds. I mean, that's really, well, that's not a, a lot. And that's not a lot. <laughs> it's not a lot. It is, uh, you, you can make a lot more money working at McDonald's. Yeah, sure. And um, so I guess then when you said that, my mind went off like, oh, special interest. Like you got them, people have to earn money somehow, right? Um, is, right. That, is, is that a problem in politics? Or problem might be the wrong word. Is it uh, an issue in? It is. And so they're, uh, American states are weird in all sorts of ways, but one is the salary issue. So in California, for example, they pay members of their legislature about $100,000 a year. In New Hampshire, they pay them $100 a year. We pay them a little less than $14,000 a year. So we're on the low end. And it is an issue because if, you know, I always tell people, let's say I wanted to run for office tomorrow, which would be a bad idea for the state, but let's pretend I overlooked that. And I said, I'm going to run for office. So I go home and tell my wife I want to run for office. And she says, well, that's fine. You know, how often are you going to be in Raleigh or state capital? I, I don't know, some unknown number of months. Okay, well, how much money are you going to make? Well, $14,000 a year. Can you do that while running your job as a professor? Absolutely not. So I'd be saying, I'm going to quit my job, take a pay cut, be gone some number of months. And so that absolutely selects for different kinds of people to run for office, frankly, the ones who can afford to make $14,000 a year. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, and so you touched on this in your intro, but I just put like an easy way for kind of people, especially outside of the state to kind of get an in on the differences within states is kind of thinking in terms of blue, red, purple. Would it be, for the introduction, is it fair to say North Carolina is like a, a purple-ish state? It is. You know, I think of it in some ways as the most purple of the purple states. So it's a battleground state. In 2008, North Carolina went for Barack Obama. In 2012, uh, it voted against Barack Obama, but it was right at the center of the country. In other words, of all the states that went red, it was the bluest one of them all. Same thing in 2016 and the same thing in 2020. So it is right on the razor's edge in American politics. What's going to happen in two years or you know, in three years, I guess, at this point, we really just don't know. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and so in terms of, so the governor doesn't, still today doesn't have that much power. And so the legislator has quite a bit of power, but not necessarily the, the, the instruments to always manage that power. Then, so where does, what, where does the power lie or who gets to shape the power? Or is that just a, it's like, it's another reflection of national politics. You get like gridlock? You do, you do get a lot of gridlock and the legislature, although they're not well-resourced, still exerts most of the power. The governor, and this really, kind of gets to the, the purple point. So our, our legislature, state legislature in North Carolina is controlled by the Republican party. The governor is a Democrat. So the governor, again, not a lot of formal power, but he does have a little bit. He's got veto power, last state in the country to give it to the governor, but we did finally. And so he has used his veto power more than any governor in the state's history. So the legislature tries to pass laws, the governor tries to veto them, and general in the Republicans do not have enough seats to override that veto without getting Democrats on their side. 
So what you end up with is exactly what you described. It's gridlock. So it is a split state, a purple state that has some gloves off politics, but they're not really accomplishing that much because of this partisan division. Okay, wow, that's fascinating. It really is like a microcosm um, of, of the kind of the national scene. Um, okay, so turning to the pandemic, um, I, get, I mean, we're almost two years now, actually. I mean, I remember, um, I think it must have been this week, right? <laughs> In the UK, I think we, we kind of locked down uh, about a week after you guys. So maybe you're two, two years and a week on um, from where we were. What was, the, what was the initial kind of reaction to the pandemic in North Carolina? You know, I think at the beginning, much like the rest of the country, it wasn't terribly politicized, right? I think people sort of accepted, um, you know, the lockdowns, uh, the isolation, flattening the curve, of course, was a term that we used at that point. I don't think folks really understood what it meant, but people were still at least repeating it. So it was what I think you saw in the rest of the country and probably the rest of the world. People for the most part, staying home, for the most part, listening, for the most part, you know, almost taking it as a temporary respite. You know, I, I definitely heard some folks saying, look, I don't love this. I hope it doesn't last forever, but it's kind of nice to be able to stay home, be with family, escape a little bit. Um, schools did shut down. We went online. We weren't prepared for it, frankly. So I work at a university. You know, I teach classes, I have students, of course. I teach them in person seemed like at the drop of a hat, all of a sudden we were not in person, we were online. And so we were adjusting, but it wasn't, it didn't feel anyway like a deep division in the country because I think people thought it would be fairly limited. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose at least, like at least initially, I mean, Democrats were probably pushing for it more anyway. And then you had a Republican president if, we can, if Donald Trump is a Republican, then we had a Republican president saying um, that, yeah, that kind of, it was three weeks of flat on the curve, wasn't it? That was the. Yep, that's of, about right. Yeah. It didn't sadly quite work out that way. But. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. And I think, you know, maybe a little far afield, but I'm not sure that everybody has sort of quipped to this, but I think it's true that I don't think people had a good understanding of what flatten the curve meant, right? That you could flatten it, but you're still going to get the same number of infections. And so I think flatten the curve was a catchy phrase that for a lot of folks was shorthand for stay home and let this thing go away. And that's really not what they were actually saying. Um, but that's the way it was received, I think, by a lot of citizens. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was similar. Yeah, like, okay, we'll, we'll take the short term pain or whatever, whatever term you use, and then we'll all get back to our lives by kind of May 2020, um, yeah. And so what was it like in the impact? Was it so schools shut, presumably, um, or, or maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> um, they did. Yeah, and then so was there, and lots of people were working at home where they could. Did you had, I mean, in the UK, for instance, we had, because like, quite doing, some people can work from home and some people just, like, it's not possible to. Was there kind of, was there a similar kind of impact very much so. Um, so yeah, folks in kind of knowledge industries broadly defined, frankly, folks like professors um, were able to work from home. And so that wasn't, I mean, it was hard, it was different, but it wasn't, um, you know, challenging to the core of our livelihood. 
but for folks who are working in factories, for folks who are producing goods for a living on a factory line, it was extremely difficult. Um, I think it also introduced a lot of mental health problems uh, for people. And, you know, for folks with, you know, some kids in particular who rely on the schools for free and reduced lunch to escape what might be a situation at home that is abusive. All of a sudden they weren't able to escape. And so I think it introduced a host of problems. Yes, the economic, of course, but also, you know, issues around child protection, issues around um, learning, of course, but even issues around food. And so in my rural county in North Carolina, the school bus the school bus would drive around and drop off free and reduce or drop off free lunches for kids who needed them. So you can imagine just sort of a, a school bus driving around the mountains of Appalachia, drop, you know, honking the horn and dropping off food. And that's really what people were doing for a while. Obviously things changed, but at the beginning, I think there was a sense of, um, uh, you know, kind of the collective that, that won out for weeks or maybe a couple of months. Okay, and then, so I've, as it, as I said, I think I'm getting from what you're saying, as with elsewhere, initially there was probably a sense of solidarity broadly yes. defined. And then after, did, as the pandemic's evolved, has that, um, as we've seen at a national level in the US, has that that's di dissolved within the states? That's right. Yes. I think what happened in North Carolina, much like what happened in the rest of the country, was that it became politicized. And, and folks could argue about why that is, whether that's a good thing or not. But I think we'd all agree that it happened. Essentially, in broad strokes, um, Democrats were much more likely to want to shut things down. Republicans are more likely to want to open things up. Sort of this tension, whether real or imagined, but it, politically it was real, between the economy and between public safety and public health. Um, again, I think some folks would disagree with that characterization, but that was at least in, I think, the common conversation that you had. And then in the later stages of the pandemic, it is evolved or devolved, depending on your perspective, to uh, tensions over masking, right? With Democrats, again, on average, wanting to keep masking going longer, with Republicans wanting to stop masking or lead to choice, which tends to be the phrase that they used. And the way that played out in North Carolina was this tension that I had sort of teased at the beginning between the governor and the legislature. So the governor, again, not a lot of power, legislature, a lot of power, governor, Democrat, legislature, Republican. But the Republicans didn't have enough votes to override the veto of the governor. The governor also, one of the powers he did have that hadn't been used a lot was emergency power. So he could say, hey, we're in a state of emergency, since I can do a lot more stuff. And he enacted that state of emergency at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's been going on ever since. And so you can imagine the Republicans are saying, hey, you are acting more like a king, which in the United States is a, you know, <laughs> is a bad word, fairly a right problematic here. characterization. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then uh, and the governor's saying, hey, I have this power. And so that has that that tension has really kicked up. And again, this phrase choice versus choice is what the Republicans are saying for the most part. 
and Democrats talking about safety. That tension has been um, exposed over the last few months. Okay. Um, and are there kind of, are there, I guess, you know, looking back now two years in, are there particular dates or events when you think, you know, when we think back to the pandemic in, in this context, mm -hmm. in North Carolina, people are going to remember, I mean, it, you know, history takes a while to write, so we might not know yet, but are there ones where you think, oh, that, that could be seen as significant or emblematic? You know, I think there's a couple of events um, that I'd point to. One was issues in, around the election with um, vote by mail. So vote by mail in North Carolina has tended to be about four or five percent of the um, votes cast. Okay, so not nothing, but certainly not uh, you know, a major way in which people cast their votes. In the last election, 2020, it was about one in every five. It actually surpassed the number of election day votes in North Carolina. Election day became the least popular way to vote. So I think that's one thing we're going to remember is how we changed elections. The way we run elections in the United States in general, but in North Carolina in particular, changed. And I think we're gonna, political scientists, we're gonna use that as perhaps an instrument to try to understand you know, what that meant for the composition of the electorate. But I think your average person is going to think about that as well. There were also issues about funding of elections. So Facebook sort of famously has a group that gives money to local election officials to run elections. So during the pandemic, they bought extra san you know, hand sanitizer. They bought masks. They bought pins that could be exchanged, things like that. Well, there became a lot of controversy around those gifts with some people saying, hey, that's Facebook trying to uh, run our elections and other people saying, no, that's Facebook trying to help our safety. So again, tension there. So that'd be one event I'll point to. And the other one um, just was playing out over the last week. The Republicans passed something they called the Free the Smiles Act. And so- Free the Smiles Act. Free the Smiles Act. You've got to love the brain. Right. <laughs> and so what the Free the Smiles Act said was parents should decide. So right now, all of our school districts can make their own decisions about masks. So you might have County A saying kids have to be masked, County B saying it's optional. The Free the Smiles Act would have said it's optional throughout the state. Kids get to choose or parents get to choose. Excuse me. And the governor vetoed it. So the Free the Smiles Act gets passed. Republicans vote for it. For the most part, uh, a couple of Dems voted for it. The governor vetoes it. It goes back. The legislature cannot override that veto. So again, Governor Cooper, no relation to me, although we have the same last name, using the little bit of power that he has with this veto to um, uh, you know, exert his will, as politicians will do. Okay, um, just going back to the, the vote by mail. So I've done a bit, a little bit of work yeah. around this myself. Um, kind of, I guess, more looking at kind of the macro picture, and I'm just aware that it's such a like it became a weirdly this massive issue. Um, at, like, is it does it continue to be, and and is it like so? Some states have kind of rolled back the ability to do it, and other states have said we can uh, you can continue to use it moving forward like what what's going to happen with the midterms yeah so 
we can still continue to use it. Um, there's been a lot of debate about when we can accept those. So can you accept them after election day, to have to postmark by election day or receive by election day? Um, so I, yes, you can still do vote by mail. I My guess is that it's going to be larger than it has been in the past before 2020, but less than 2020, right? We know that voting is habitual, both in who you vote for, but also how you vote. So I think for a lot of folks, they realized vote by mail was pretty easy. So I think we're gonna see more of it, although I don't think we're gonna see the same numbers. The other piece of this vote by mail that I find so interesting, it relates directly to the pandemic and to President Trump, as you mentioned before, is um, prior to 2020, it was Republicans, not Democrats, who were the most likely to use vote by mail in North Carolina and in most other states. So a lot of these folks were um, military folks stationed abroad. In 2020, that flipped. Uh, it was Democrats, not Republicans, who were the most likely to use vote by mail. And I think that was both a cause, you know, I think in some ways Trump and his rhetoric caused that, but it was also an effect of that, right? It was it sort of, it's difficult for me to unpack the cause and the effect, but it definitely happened. And I think vote by mail will continue to be politicized on partisan lines in a way that it just frankly never was before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a. I mean, Trump himself votes by mail, but anyway, never mind. <laughs> this, this, I get, yeah, we could go go around forever on that. <laughs> Probably <laughs> not. All on its own. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how and so, to what extent? I mean, I guess we've you've surmised this already. This final question, but um, just in case you had anything else to say, on it, how much has the kind of pandemic within North Carolina reflected the national? I mean, for those of you, like if you've never seen North Carolina on a map, obviously, you just, just go look at it. Not actually that far from kind of the kind of eastern, you know, DC and all of that area. So, how much has it reflected um, that national scene? Very much so. You know, we talk in political science in the United States a lot about the nationalization of state and local politics, that state politics and local politics in our country are increasingly influenced by national politics. And we have absolutely seen that in North Carolina state politics, in North Carolina local politics, particularly as it relates to the pandemic. So we have school boards in the United States um, that, that, like it sounds like they run schools, essentially. It's like a, a, a nonprofit board for schools. And uh, I don't have great data on this, but just sort of anecdotally, we're getting a lot of people running for school board this time. We're having competitive elections for rural school boards in a way we never did before. And part of that, I think, is the nationalization of local school board politics, whether it's around masking or you know, another subject for another podcast, right? Could be critical race theory. Or yeah, critical yeah, that's becoming an issue here as well. Um, right. Yeah. It's fascinating. And so that is that is a national conversation that has trickled down to the state and local level. So the politics of the pandemic in North Carolina reflect national politics in some ways, as I've been arguing all along, sort of intensified uh, just because of the tight, tight partisan makeup of our state. OK, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um, we should definitely have you on again at some point. <laughs> that the more distance we get from this stuff, the more and more kind of comes into view. Um, so thank you very much indeed. It was I've learned loads.
Thank you. Me too. Brilliant.